Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? I particularly liked this lesson. I don't know why, but there was something about studying the nature and the power of God and seeing him work that brought me such a great sense of peace. As I talk about Genesis tonight, seven and eight, I'm gonna talk about it from the standpoint of the Bible being reliable and true. I'm convinced the Bible, while not a science book as we think about it, explains quite well what we actually see in nature. I really believe that. And for example, if you go look at Genesis 8.22, just that last bit of 8.22, it tells us after the flood that God promised that there would be harvest seasons, winter and summer, cold and hot, day and night, and they won't change. That sounds like God managing the physical laws of nature. That's what it sounded like to me when I read that. It's like he said, now, now nature is going to be like this, and I'm going to set it in this motion. Those are very four specific opposites that have a vast array of scientific laws associated with each of them. I was a scientist in school. I took a lot of classes in engineering and science, and I read about Kepler's laws of planetary motion, Boyle's laws of gases, Maxwell's laws of electricity, Newton's laws of forces, and Mendel's laws of genetics. And all of those sounded like God was saying, and those, I'm doing something with those. You know, and so it made me think, well, maybe that before the flood, they weren't like that. Like maybe he took those laws and said, now those laws exist. Before the flood, something else happened. And you think when you study that, what happened before, because you use these laws, you know what happened before. Maybe these laws weren't the same then. And I was like, that's cool, God. That's how he thinks, right? In fact, I believe this may have been God changing all those natural forces prior to the flood to something new after the flood. And all of those forces, if you think about it, the things like gravity, vacuums, heat transfer, and magnetism are secondary forces that are all under the control, not of Mother Nature, but under the direct power and authority of an almighty God. That's what makes me smile. God didn't create nature and hope someday life would emerge. That's not what the Bible teaches. God is in full control of nature. It reports to him at all times. David said in Psalm 135, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on earth and in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses God is the master of that domain, not Mother Nature. In fact, did you know Mother Nature comes from Greek mythology? That concept is nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere did God create Mother Nature. Natural forces are laws that God created and put in place. Remember these examples. God opened the Red Sea. Remember that? And two million Israelites moved through the Dead Sea on dry land. And then he closed the Red Sea and killed out all of Pharaoh's armies. God did that. And you'd say, well, how did he do that? He did that. He directly 
intervened in the, in the lives of, of, of the Pharaoh right before that with 10 plagues. What were those 10 plagues about? Him controlling nature. 10 gods that the Egyptians worshiped, all nature gods, he opposed each one of them with a force of his own to say, that's not, that's not God, I am. Watch this, watch this. 10 overturnings of those natural gods were God saying, I'm in control of nature. Did you go read the book of Joshua? God stopped the sun one day to help Joshua defeat his enemies. And people are like, did that happen? Yeah, go back and look, it happened. Jesus, think about Jesus. He converted water to wine. Water has no molecules of wine in it. He converts water to wine, he walks on water, and then he gets a sea to stop moving by doing what? Speaking. Does that sound like mother nature to you? No, that's God Almighty. These are examples of a God that's in control of nature, not some mythical mother. God's the guy in charge of the nature that we see. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. That's the God we believe in who's the God of the Bible. And so that's why I believe the flood of Noah was a historic event that demonstrates the immense power of God. And I also believe that because there's some really important people in the Bible that said the same thing. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Peter said in 2 Peter 2, God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah. In Isaiah 54, he said, to me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never cover the earth again. Jesus, Peter, Isaiah, I deeply respect those men. I follow them. I trust them. I follow everything they say because I believe they were inspired by God. These men were clearly talking about the flood as if it was real. They would never point to a fable or a myth to make the points they were making in those stories. So why would we think it's a fable or a myth? It's not. This is the historic event presented by God, done by God, to make three critical points. One, God wants us to see that he always provides an ark to his believers. Two, God kills those who are not on that ark. And three, God uses the ark as a time for us to grow. Tonight, I pray you will fully believe in the flood and accept Jesus as the ark of your salvation. Join me as we pray right now for men who are not saved in this room. Heavenly Father, I pray, Jesus, that your ark of salvation, which is open now, will become a place for men tonight that to step into for guys that don't know you that are here that maybe think they do right now. And maybe in the next 20 minutes, they'll realize they don't. Jesus, open that ark wide. Invite them in now. Help me get out of the way. Please don't let me get in your way, Lord. Help your words be heard, not mine. And Lord, please shut these phones down so these men are not distracted. In your name I pray, Jesus, amen. Let me first share a few thoughts about why God provides an ark for his believers. In Genesis 7, 1, God says, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. In Hebrews eleven seven, we read how God decided Noah was righteous. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this 
He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. God declared Noah was righteous and would be saved. That declaration was based on the faith of Noah in God. That faith in God was demonstrated how? By the construction of that ark. The righteousness of Noah was defined by God, not by Noah. That righteousness is why God chose to save Noah and his family. And in the same way, God provided Jesus as a new ark. Jesus said, I'm making a new covenant with you. This ark that we see now is the Jesus we know, and it's the new ark of the new covenant. All who have faith in Jesus would be called righteous with God, and all who are right with God will find eternal life. Just in the, as in the days of Noah, there is only one ark on which to be saved. There's one, and today that ark is named Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I grew up Catholic, thinking in order to be right with God, I had to be baptized. I had to go get confirmed. I had to go to communion every week, and I had to confess my sins. I was told that. I was told that. I was told that. And so I know there was more to that story, but that's what I remembered. But this is what the Bible says. This makes it perfectly clear. It says, doing all of that stuff does not make you right with me, Bill. For you guys who grew up in the church, you think maybe you inherited your faith. You can't. You don't inherit faith. Coming to church does not mean you're saved. Attending Bible study does not mean you're saved. None of those things mean you're saved. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You must believe and confess. God decides if you're saved, not you. We all seem to think if we do things, we're good. But God says that's not the way it works. I look at the heart of a man. He knows what's going on in your heart, dear friends. When you declare that you accepted Jesus, he knows what you meant. He knows what you were doing. He knows where your heart was then. Many people follow crowds and do what they see in the Christian culture, and they just go with those things because they see people doing that. That does not make you right with God. That makes you right with man. God declares a man righteous, not man. In John 3, Jesus said this, For God did not send his Son into this world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands confirmed, condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. How can you be sure you haven't just memorized the Christian answers when people ask if you're saved? Your salvation is not saying special words. It's believing in Jesus. It's believing on Jesus. Your belief in Jesus is what will drive you to confess Jesus as Lord. And it will cause you to believe in new and very different ways. You will find yourself behaving in radically different ways than you did when you actually believe this stuff. You will. You should see your behavior change. If you believed in Jesus, if you're saying, I believe in this man, I believe who you are, Jesus, your behavior should change radically different. You should find yourself doing crazy things like building arcs. Yeah, 
You should find yourself telling people about Jesus. Like you, it's just, you cannot not say it, right? You should find yourself giving away money in ways that you never thought you would. You should find yourself saying, man, I don't want anybody to know I just did this because I don't want to please anybody other than you, Jesus. A man whose heart is fully trusting and dependent on Jesus doesn't behave like a man who does not believe. And this is what we saw in Noah. He did not behave like men who didn't believe. How has your life dramatically changed because you decided to get on the boat with Jesus? How has it changed? And if you're saying nothing's changed, you might not be on the boat. Now, let me share a few thoughts about life outside the ark. In Genesis 7:23, God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. Only Noah was left and those on the ark with him. In Genesis 6:5 tells us why God did this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And just think about that. That's what he saw. God initiated this process of death when he closed the door on the ark. God set a time limit for salvation. He provided 120 years for the people of Noah's time to repent. And when that time ended, the door was slammed shut. No one else was getting on that boat. And when the rains came and they were pounding on the doors, Noah could not open that door because God closed it. It was not his choice. It was God's choice. And God's doing that again right now. We are living in a time when men can be saved. God sent his son Jesus to save us and told us the clock is ticking. In Matthew 24, he makes it crystal clear. The time is coming when everything will abruptly end. And many men feel they have plenty of time to sort it out. Got a lot of time. I'm young. I got time to figure this out. This flood story is just like the earthquake we saw in Turkey two weeks ago. 47,000 people died, and an hour before they died, they had no idea they were dying that day. This is what Jesus said. It's going to be like that. It's going to be like that. That time's coming. If you are here tonight and you aren't certain you are right with God, please let the Holy Spirit start talking to you right now. Listen to what he's saying. He's talking to you. What doubts or fears are holding you back? What scientific evidence has confused you about the truth of this story? Pray, seriously, if you're right here right now and you're, and you're feeling this, pray right now and say, God, please convict my heart of truth right now, please. Pray it right now while you wait. In Genesis 4, God told Cain that if he did not get control of his sin, it would take control of him. This was the first time the word sin was spoken. Adam introduced the original sin, the first disobedience to God, but it wasn't until God saw Cain's unfaithful disregard for him that God called that behavior sin. In Genesis 6, the line of Cain corrupt the world with sin. It took full control of his entire family line. Subsequently, God in Genesis 7 exercised judgment against sin. God killed sinful man just as he promised he would to Adam. You will die. 
And he said the same thing to Cain. If you don't get control over this, it's going to take control of you. And it did. And they all died. The violent ending cannot be avoided if God is truly just and loving. There's no other way. Pure love cannot tolerate sin. Justice has to destroy evil because it corrupts everything that God makes. God's nature is love, and therefore he cannot bypass destroying all that is evil. This story makes it crystal clear that those who are corrupted will all be destroyed. Death at the hand of God is clear. It's coming, and it's going to happen. God hates sin and will destroy all people who sin. Noah, Isaiah, John, Paul, Jesus all record declarations that all men are sinners, all of us, every one of us. We've all filled with corrupt and evil thoughts, and you know that's true. You can't hardly wake up a day without him. You know it's true. And what that means is you will die. You're going to die. So how do you feel about your sin compared to how God views your sin? When you look at your sin and you think God looks at it and says, that makes me want to kill you. How do you look at it? Uh, It's okay, God. It's not that bad. It's going to be okay. I got this one. I'll just clean that up tomorrow. That's not how he views your sin at all. He wants sin to die. And he kills sin when he kills people. Now, this is a hard one for people. The death of loved ones, infants and children, innocent people cause so many people to walk away from God. And especially when they read this story, millions, potentially billions of people could have been on the earth at that time. And people say, how could God kill all those people? How could he do that? The pain of that makes them not love God. They want to walk away from him. And that's because a lot of us have experienced the pain of death. I certainly have. And what I could tell you guys is this, especially as Christian men, when you see unbelievers struggling with death, this isn't the time to go hit them with Bible quotes and logic. It's the time to act like a man of God and go love them and mourn with them and comfort them. That's what we do. But recognize, faith in Jesus is either going to grow or it's going to die in those moments when you're facing death. For unbelievers, death destroys everything that they've lived for. That's all they know. It's all they have. That's the last thing they want to have happen is death. For believers, death brings us everything that we have been living for. We're excited to know that we're going to step into the presence of Almighty God. Death is the single greatest test of your faith in Jesus. And for you guys that have not faced it yet, it's coming. And it will test your faith like nothing else. When you face death, your faith will be challenged at a level you have never anticipated. What thoughts do you rehearse when you think about your own death and those you love? Think about it. How do you rehearse that in your mind when you start really thinking about yourself dying and others around you? What do you picture? What's your mind think about? Police your rehearsing of that sometime to see what you really believe is the next thing for you after death. It might challenge you to think about how you picture and think about death, because death is what pushes your faith. Let me share a few thoughts about life on the ark. Genesis 8.1 says, but God remembered Noah. And many of us ask, well, how could he have forgotten Noah? God didn't forget Noah. This is Noah telling the story from his perspective. He felt like God had forgotten him. 
And I don't think we really spent any time because Noah didn't detail it. But let me be a little bit illustrative for you. Let me paint between the lines a few minutes. 370 days on a boat, an ark. Think about the first 40 days. These guys grew up on land. They weren't boat dwellers. It was probably terrifying when God slammed the doors shut. They didn't close the door. God slams the door. Now they're all looking at each other. How are we getting off this thing? They had to be freaking out. Can you imagine what happened when the rain started? And they're hearing the people beating on the sides of the boat and screaming and crying. 40 days of rain, probably no ability to get outside for fresh air and sun. 40 days. Think how you go crazy in Indianapolis after a month of no sun. <laughs> Think what it's like. 40 days on a boat, no sun, no fresh air. You haven't been outside. And this boat is an absolute crazy place. The, the, the core of the earth is opening. The tectonic plates are moving because the waters are coming up out. So there's volcanic eruptions of water. You know what that's called? Tsunami. When there's a volcano in an ocean, it creates a wave, and that wave propagates into a huge wave, 30, 40, 50-foot waves pouring against, pounding against this boat day after day after day. Can you imagine what this boat is doing? Can you imagine the movement on that boat? These people have never been on a boat. They're all puking. They're seasick. Day after day after day, the animals are puking. Everybody's puking. Can you imagine the smell and how bad they felt? Is it ever going to end? They have no idea what's going on with them. Think about how much time they had to spend feeding the animals, watering the animals, cleaning up the animal crap, and how smell, the odor. Can you picture this? And the food they brought on board is starting to get old. It's starting to rot. It's starting to not taste good. They're getting hungrier. They're losing weight. They're getting crabby. They're getting irritable. They're getting in conflicts with each other. Can you imagine a year on a boat with your family? I can't. After one week, Noah probably felt abandoned. Think about it, honestly. Can you imagine a whole year of that? So when he said, God remembered me, I don't think that was an idle comment. God remembered me because it sure as heck felt like he lost me. I bet he was so incredibly happy when God said, Noah, it's time to come out. Last week, my wife was scared and struggling with pain in her legs and her arms. This has been going on for months now. And I got out of the shower. I went in the bedroom. It was dark. And I heard her crying. And so I sat there and I hugged her. And I just sat there. I didn't know what to do. I mean, honestly, I was just like, I don't know what to do, Lord. I, I, I'm, I don't know what to do. And she's just hugging me and crying and crying. And she's begging God. And she said, you've forgotten me, God. You've forgotten me. Why have you forgotten me? 32 years ago. I had that same experience with my wife. We were sitting in a hospital room, and she was on magnesium sulfate to stop preterm labor. And if you've ever been on magnesium sulfate, it makes you feel like you're suffocating. And I was holding her the exact same way. And she was saying the same words. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? So how is the pain of your life causing you to wonder if God has forgotten you? I know some of you guys have had a nice, easy life, and you haven't had that kind of pain, but you will. And there'll be a time when you're going to feel like God's forgotten you. 
and it's going to hurt, and you're going to be scared, and you're not going to know where to go, and you're not going to know what's going on. But God's going to come, you guys. He said, Noah, come out. And when Noah came out, the first thing he did was built an altar. And he took animals that he'd cared for a year. Can you imagine this little lamb? He knew that little lamb. Well, he'd been feeding that lamb for a year. And he took that little lamb, he cut its throat, and he killed it, and he pieced it up, and he burned it on an altar and said, God, you know no idea. You have no idea how thankful I am. You got me off that stinking boat. And thank you that we're not dead. We're not dead. You guys have no idea that's just a, like an idle comment. And he made an altar and sacrificed some else. You have no idea what he was experiencing. I mean, this, this had to be an unbelievable amount of joy and thankfulness and gratitude. Guys, God has not forgotten you if you're in one of these places right now. I'm just telling you, he's not. He showed up. He showed up in my life every time I'm in one of these places. But it doesn't feel like it. It feels like he's so far away, but he hasn't forgotten you. He's going to remember you. Hang on. Hang on. One last thought. Why would God make Noah stay on the boat so stinking long? I believe one answer could be that God needed to strengthen the faith of Noah. What level of faith was Noah going to need to endure the trials of life on this new earth? After it had been completely dismantled, nothing was the same as when he left. Nothing. Things didn't work the same way. Life was going to be radically different. And Noah, Noah knew he was going to face his own death and the death of his family. Noah's faith would be critical, and God allowed the time in the ark to strengthen it. And God does that to us in the same way when we're saved. The faith we have at our salvation has to grow to help us be used by God to save a broken world. It also needs to grow to help us face our death. It needs to grow to help us handle the final days when Jesus judges the world. These are three key things. He needs you to be saving people. That's going to take faith. He needs you to handle your own death. That takes faith. And he needs you to face end times. That's going to take faith, you guys. God says you need to be growing while you're on this ark right now. He needs you to grow. Receiving Jesus as Lord helps you enter the ark. You're in the ark of Jesus Christ. God then makes us weather incredible storms and difficult living conditions to transform our heart and to make us incredibly reliant on him. The ark is a place where we must learn to die to ourselves, and submit to the plans of the captain of the boat. And his name is Lord Jesus. A dear friend of mine, his name's Alan Crippen, is an Anglican pastor and while working for the American Bible Society, he helped build the Center for Faith and Liberty in Philadelphia two years ago. It's a magnificent place. It's one of the most advanced technological places in the world that displays the Bible, the American Bible Society in Philadelphia, right on the plaza. Very few people know about it. I really encourage you to go see it. And while Alan was doing that, he was building that. He was the lead guy on this thing. He also edited and wrote a new Bible called the Bible of Faith and Liberty. And as he's in the middle of that work, his wife of 40 years died at the age of 54. We're very close friends of ours. Spent so much time with them, raised our kids together. And 
Last week I asked Alan how the death of Michelle impacted his faith. And he wrote this back. These are his words. Michelle's death crushed my faith. The devil wanted me to question the goodness and integrity of God. The devil always seems to use death to pull us away from God. But in God's way, he takes these traumas and ultimately works them to strengthen our faith. It took 10 months for me to get there. I wish there was an easier way to faith and holiness, but I don't think there is. Tragedy, suffering, sorrow, and grief are the way to greater faith. How is the broody, brutally difficult boat ride of your life growing or diminishing your faith right now? How is the boat ride of your life growing or diminishing your faith right now? Let me conclude, conclude by reading, I can't talk now. Let me conclude by reading these words of Jesus from Matthew 24. Listen to these words, guys. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The ark and the flood are God's clear and true message. They're meant to warn us and to motivate us. Stop analyzing the story. Believe it. The God who controls all nature did this to save you. God who created everything with his words will end it with his words. Jesus was sent as an ark to rescue all mankind. God so loved this evil, corrupt, stinking world that he sent his son. This will be the last ark God will provide. No more boats. It's time to get on board. If you sense Jesus is calling you, you've got to come now. I'm going to stand right over there. If you want to come, I want to help you get on this boat. The ark of the covenant of Jesus is open now. And God is going to abruptly close this door when you do not expect it. And once this door closes, there will be no more, not ever, not another opportunity to be saved. Please do not wait. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. And we are fearfully, wonderfully grateful, Lord. I pray, Jesus, right now, if there's a man sitting there going, I don't know what to do, I don't know, as I should, get him up. Have him meet me in this corner, Lord. Have him stand up and come. Come to you. Jesus, pull him out. Holy Spirit, lift him up now. Help no man leave here unsure that he's on your boat. Precious Jesus, we love you and we need you. In your name we pray. Amen.